0: Is ago, I received in the post a letter from a very important person. Namely, Andrew G. Brown, Chief Constable of Grampian Police. Dated the 4th of June, 2003, this is what the letter said, and I quote directly. Dear Sir, Madam, I have reason to believe that you have committed... A fixed penalty offence. At 11.43 on the 22nd of May 2003 at Stonehaven Road, Aberdeen near Cairngorm Road, Aberdeen District you did drive a motor vehicle namely T160RKS Ford Mandeo LX Auto at a speed of 51 miles per hour speeding in a 40 miles per hour speed limit and did exceed the statutory speed limit and I offer you an alternative to prosecution the payment of £60 and three penalty points I immediately got out my diary and checked the dates maybe the letter was really meant for dear madam (laughs) but no, my wife was not driving the car that day I was driving it to Aberdeen to collect my daughter from Robert Gordon University where she was studying at the time. I checked the map. Where was Stonehaven Road? Yes, it's the road you approach as you come down to the roundabout on the outskirts of Aberdeen. Just as I had entered Aberdeen on the morning of May the 22nd, 2003, I checked with the policeman in the congregation. Could I not appeal to the fact that I had not seen the 40 miles per hour limit? that I had driven for 30 years without any convictions for anything, that I was the senior pastor of Charlotte Baptist Church. (laughs) No, there was nothing I could do. I was caught on camera. I was guilty. I felt guilty. And I had to pay the penalty. Why? Because like every other citizen of this country, I am under the law. The law of the land. And if I break the law, I am without excuse and I must suffer the consequences. Now, important though the law of the land is, there is another law which operates within our world. It is the law of God. This law was first given in written form to the ancient people of Israel some 4,000 years ago and is summarized in what is called the Ten Commandments, which we read or the children read for us from the second book of the Bible in Exodus 20, verses 1 to 21. And if you have a Bible, it will help to turn to page 77 if you have a pew Bible. If not, it's the second book in the Bible. And today, by way of introduction to our autumn series on the Ten Commandments, I want to simply ask and try and answer this morning a very important fundamental question. What is our relationship to the Ten Commandments, to the law of God? In short, are you and I above the law? While people are generally law-abiding as far as the law of the land is concerned, our interviews reveal that many people believe that the Ten Commandments are out of date and irrelevant. They are above such laws. They don't apply to us. So I want to look at the law of God and its relevance to everyone. But I also want to address this question to those of us here this morning, perhaps most or many of us, who would claim to be Christians. What is the relationship of the Christian to the Ten Commandments, to the law of God? Didn't the Apostle Paul say, you are not under law, but under grace? So in regard to the Ten Commandments, quite a lot of Christians would say, we're above that law. All we need is the law of love. As St. Augustine famously put it, love God and do as you please. So I want to ask the same question to those of us who are Christians. Are we above the law? But first of all, let's begin by looking at those to whom this law was first given, who were definitely under the law. The people of Israel. And consider why God gave them this particular law. Uh, So, recognising this is a vast subject, we can only touch on these three themes. Let's begin at the beginning with the Ten Commandments and the people of Israel in Exodus 20. Begins, and God spoke all these things words. The Ten Commandments which follow are described as God's words. They're often summarised in abbreviated form in Hebrew, as the Ten Words, or in Greek, the Decalogue. We read in Exodus 31, verse 18, that they were given to Moses on two tablets of stone, inscribed, it says, by the finger of God, expressing their permanence and importance. Many scholars have pointed out there are similarities between uh, the form of these kind of words and other contemporary laws that were in existence in the ancient Near East at this time. That shouldn't surprise us. Why? Because God always speaks to people in their own language and their own culture. However, what we notice here is something that is strikingly different from any other law from this time or indeed at any time. There are two important differences. First of all, These laws are enshrined or given within what we can call a covenant relationship. God established what's called a covenant. A covenant is simply a binding legal agreement between two parties. There are two places where the Ten Commandments are found in the Bible actually. The first is in Exodus 20, which was where God gave the law to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai, three months after leaving slavery in Egypt, this Hebrew, Rabble I was almost going to say, of people came to this mountain and God met with them and gave them His law, which was to be binding upon them as they made their way towards Canaan, the promised land. The second occurrence of this law is found in almost identical words, there are some slight differences, in Deuteronomy, further on, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible, in chapter 5. And here the people of Israel are now 40 years later on the border of the promised land. And Moses reminds them of God's law as they're about to enter the promised land as the covenant, the agreement is renewed. He's saying to them in effect, this is still binding upon you people. And in both cases, the commandments are prefaced by these important words, which reminds the Israelites of their motivation. Why should I obey these laws? Well, the Lord says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. In other words, the basis for this is an intimate relationship between two parties. The chief constable did not write to me and say, Dear Peter, you know I'm your friend and I'd really prefer it if you didn't speed when you're going through my district in Aberdeen. No, it was just a legal letter from up there. And at the time when Moses and the Israelites were around, the laws of other lands were like that. They were kind of dropped from heaven. And the people were told, you do this, there's no good reason for it, but if you do, don't obey this. That God said, you will be punished severely. That's the first difference. You need to see these laws... And we'll see this in relation to ourselves as part of a relationship with God. It's the maker's instructions for those who want to live lives as God designed them. And that leads to a second striking feature that differs these laws from any other law. And that is what we could call the inseparable link between religious and social behaviour. Let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, One writer puts it like this. The Old Testament insists that the ways in which we treat others are inseparable from our relationship with God. So, the first four or five, depending on how you read them, of the Ten Commandments, are all about our relationship with God. Did you notice when people were asked in the street, what are the Ten Commandments? Only one guy could identify one that was related to God. You shouldn't have any idols. Everybody else thought in terms of, How you relate to one another. Do not steal. Most people seem to know about stealing and adultery. It's about the limit of what Ten Commandments are about. But the second half of the commandments, Commandments 6 to 10, are all about our relationships with one another. How we relate to one another. In fact, we can go further and say that our relationship with God must affect how we treat one another. For only loving God properly can we love one another. You may remember that occasion when Jesus was on earth. He was asked one of those questions by one of those religious experts. He he stood up in the crowd and said, Teacher, I've got a question. What's your question? Teacher, which is the first and greatest commandment? And the Lord Jesus Christ said, Here it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. All the law... The Old Testament law, all those rules and regulations, Ten Commandments and all the rest, hang on these two commandments, and the prophets. And loving God, and loving our neighbour, are really the Ten Commandments, a summary. And the rest of the law of Moses, the bits that you maybe don't read very often, like all those laws in Leviticus, they're all an outworking of this, in the life, the civil life of the people of Israel. Now, why did God do this? Well, God did it for a very specific purpose. The nation of Israel was chosen by God to live these commandments and to show the other nations of the world how wonderful it was to live in relationship with God and to keep his laws. That this was the best way to live. In fact, God promised that way back when he called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God said to Abraham, you know, follow me, he said. And I will make you a blessing and all the nations on earth will be blessed through you. What do you think? Didn't God just choose the Jews? Yes, but through the Jews, he was going to show everyone what he was like. So that the other nations looking on would be envious and say, Oh, if we, if we only had a God like that, if only we followed those laws, we would be happy like those people are happy. Now, the great tragedy, the great tragedy is that the people of Israel failed to live up to their calling. Even while Moses was on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments, the people were down below breaking them, worshipping a golden calf, writing and immorality. Israel's failure. And it was when Moses discovered this, he smashed the Ten Commandments. He thought, this is disastrous. Rembrandt's great painting of Moses smashing the Ten Commandments. Now, God forgave them. Fortunately for them, God is a God of mercy for us. And he forgave them, gave them new stone tablets. He provided a way by which their failure and sin, when they broke the law, could be forgiven. He gave them the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, you know, where they sacrificed animals and brought offerings uh, to the Lord. But the problem, you see, is a problem that lay much, much deeper. Not just with actions of law-breaking, or even attitudes of pride and complacency. But very much deeper, in the very nature of human beings, there is a bias that turns us away from going God's way. It's a much deeper problem. And you see, here's the first function of the law of God. It shows us how we should live, really the second function, the second function is it shows us our failure. That we, even the best of us, let alone the worst, cannot keep these laws. So, a man named Paul in the New Testament, a member of the strictest and most orthodox religious groups in Israel, the Pharisees, he finally had to admit. He said, I know that nothing good lies within me, lives within me, that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. Romans 7 verse 18. The reality is, as he says in the same letter, all have sinned. Fall short of the glory of God. All of us have failed to keep God's law. The standard of perfect obedience and compliance with the law that God demands. And so a much more radical solution was needed. So the Hebrew prophets, when we move on, this is a kind of potted timeline of the Bible really, but the Hebrew prophets promised. God promised through the Hebrew prophets, I'm going to do something far better in the future. This covenant with Moses is not the end of the story. I'm going, to, I'm going to make a new agreement which will be far better. Why will it be better? Well, one of the prophets who spoke most clearly about this was Jeremiah. They think Jeremiah was a man who was just sad and mourning all the time, but he had a wonderful message to give as well. A radical solution. Jeremiah 31. The time is coming, declares the Lord notice the words carefully, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Now notice what he says. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God, they'll be my people. Can you see this is a radically different thing to outward observance. It's inward minds and hearts. Then he goes on to say, No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, No, the Lord, because they'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I'll forgive their wickedness, I'll remember their sins no more an intimate relationship was promised by God in which we have been able to keep God's law in our hearts a new nature was promised for his people now it looks forward so now we're moving from the Old Testament which is the same word for covenant testament covenant is the same word we move to the new covenant because this promise was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus so we turn secondly then From the Ten Commandments of the people of Israel to the Ten Commandments and the Christian. I have three points. This is shorter than the last one and the final one is the shortest of all in case you're worrying about the time. All right. The Ten Commandments and the Christian. If you ask most people who believe in life after death, interesting to do this as well, go down Princess Street, how do you get into heaven? How do you qualify? Most people will probably say something like, by doing your best. And should they know the Ten Commandments, they might say, by keeping the Ten Commandments or something like them. Very few people would claim to be perfect or to have kept these things perfectly. But we kind of hope that God marks on a curve and that the top 50% at least is the pass mark and we hope, because we think we're a bit better than most people that we could name, especially our next door neighbour and some of those people we see on the television those awful crimes and everything which is why the media love them so much it makes us all feel a bit better well I'll be in the top curve and I'll get into heaven rather than the bottom half going to the opposite place in total contrast and the two can never mix a Christian is someone who recognises I, if I'm a Christian, I recognize that I can never qualify for heaven by my own good works. Why? Because God demands perfection. Only 100% pastors will get there. That keeping God's laws summarized in the Old Testament is an impossibility. In the words of our final hymn, we'll sing in a little while. We say or sing the Christian's creed. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy laws demands. Could my zeal no respite no? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. And this is something which religious people, ranging from Paul the Pharisee to Martin Luther the monk in the 16th century, and subsequently, we find it very hard to admit. The law shows us how we should live and it is good. Coming from God, it reflects his character but it condemns us because we cannot keep it. It declares us guilty before God, facing his judgment. But recognising it, here's another purpose of the law, it then forces us to try and seek help elsewhere. In another letter he wrote to the Christians in Galatia, the Apostle Paul used an interesting word to describe the law. He says he describes it as our guardian. In the old authorised version, it said the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to God. Greek word is pedagogue. It teaches us, it trains us to recognize that we can't make it on our own. And it points us, therefore, towards Christ and shows us that God has got a better solution than our own efforts. That we need Christ. And so God, in his wonderful love and grace, sent his Son into the world, fully human as we are, tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is, is the only human being who has ever kept God's law absolutely perfectly without a single failure. And so having no sin of his own, he was able to bear our sin and guilt, take the punishment we deserved, bearing the wrath of God against our sin, dying in our place on the cross. And now God offers us that as a solution to our problem. Through faith in Him as our substitute, we can be put right with God. The Bible calls it being justified by trusting in Christ. Justified through faith in Christ. Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. We're reconciled with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, and this is the question what then if you've come to that place I trust you have if you haven't this morning maybe it's your moment you need to come to the cross and recognise failed and I can't make it on my own put your faith in Christ when you are put right with God what then is your relationship now to the law to the ten commandments and while most would understand that the sacrificial system is done away with through the sacrifice of Christ once for all That the civil laws in the Old Testament related specifically to the law of Israel and the nation of Israel. What about the moral law? Are we finished with the Ten Commandments? Are we not free from the law? Are we not under law but under grace? As the Apostle Paul writes, can we forget the Ten Commandments? Is this an excuse for you not to bother coming the next ten weeks as we make our way through them? Can we dispense with Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, let alone all the rest of the first five books of the Bible? Well, as Paul so often wrote, by no means, God forbid. Why not? Well, first of all, think what Jesus himself, what did Jesus say about the law? Stated most clearly in the Sermon on the Mount. Some of the most difficult verses in the Bible. But listen carefully what Jesus said. This is what Jesus said. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Not only did he say that, he then went on to say that the righteousness, the way his followers live under the law, must exceed that of the Pharisees, who were the guys who were specially committed to keeping God's law. Matthew 5. Verse 20, For I tell you, said Jesus, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what does he mean? Doesn't this just contradict everything else we've said about trying to keep God's law? Not at all. Because what Jesus is talking about is not becoming a Christian, a follower of Christ. It is being a Christian, a follower of Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is about the way that the followers of Jesus are to live. And rather than giving them some new ethic, free of any law or restriction, he says he's come to fulfil the law and the prophets. The word fulfil can mean to give the full meaning to. You see, the teacher of the law, the Pharisees and the scribes, they'd reduce God's law to hundreds of little petty regulations. Now, he said, don't break the Sabbath. They said, well, what is breaking the Sabbath? They defined in meters or yards cubits how many how far you had to walk before you broke the sabbath how much you could carry in your pocket that it was carrying something and therefore constituted work everything was reduced to a simple a list of rules that you could tick off but jesus goes beyond outward appearance to motive so he goes on to equate murder with hate he says, you've, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, whoever looks at a woman with lust in her heart is committed adul- in his heart has committed adultery with her. He goes behind the Sabbath and all the laws and talks about what the real purpose of the Sabbath is. And that's what we're going to see in our series. What the Ten Commandments mean for us today. Now, if you've followed this so far, you'll be asking a question. Well, you ought to be asking a question if you're still listening carefully. How is this possible? Just as you cannot be justified with God, put right with God by your own efforts, neither can you be sanctified by your own efforts. That is made holy. You cannot live a life that is pleasing to God by your own efforts. We need help. Go back to our Old Testament prophecy. What did the prophets promise? That God would give us a new nature. A new ability to keep his law. Christ not only puts us right with God, but when you become a Christian, this is the amazing thing, maybe you're not a Christian, you think, I'd love to be a Christian, but I could never keep it up. I'd never live that kind of life. Absolutely, you're quite right. But God will not only forgive you, He gives you His Spirit who comes to live within you, to enable you to live a life that pleases God. It's not by human effort, but by His Spirit. So what kind of life pleases God? What does it look like? It looks like the Ten Commandments in their fullest meaning, fulfilled in us, as God's law is written in our very nature. So again, in the letter to the Romans, listen carefully what the Apostle Paul says. Romans 8, verses 3 and 4. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature... God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful men to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. Now here's the emphasis I've put on this. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Can you see the difference? You live a new life with a new nature in the power of the spirit. Yes, it's still a battle. You won't be perfect. But you're enabled to keep God's law in a way that you never could before or never wanted to. To mention several books as we go through the Ten Commandments, if you like lighter readings, a little paper by Stuart Briscoe entitled Playing by the Rules. In it he says, Do the Ten Commandments have any significance for us today? Of course they do. Not as a means of justification, but a means of demonstrating that you have been justified, put right with God. You're not under law, you're under grace in order that. In the power of the Spirit, you might fulfil the righteousness of the law as contained in the Ten Commandments, outlined in the Ten Commandments. Now, we don't take pride in this. It's God who does it. It's His Spirit at work within us as we cooperate with Him, making us the kind of people whom the Ten Commandments describe. And there's an additional feature about this as well. Here's one of the marks. I've asked, are you a Christian? And there are different ways of telling whether, you really, whether this has really happened in your life. Here's one of the key marks of a person as a Christian. It's that you love God's law. You read God's commandments. If you're not a Christian, you say, what a load of negative restrictive rules. Ah, oh, they're out of date. I don't believe in that. i chafe against that kind of thing. When you become a Christian, God places within your heart a desire to please him. So it's not a duty, but a delight. Again, another book written by one of our former assistant pastors here, Alistair Beck, on the Ten Commandments. Some of these are available in the bookstore, by the way. Pathway to Freedom. What he says, Alistair says, The believer has been changed inwardly, given a new heart, the same shape as the law of God. It's a perfect fit. There is nothing uncomfortable or irksome about it. Now, you can put this in human terms. Let me give you a theoretical example. I'm not referring to any young man in this congregation, all right? Think of a young man who every day after work he goes out with his mates and he spends all his evenings with them and then one week he stops coming and he's not there the second week or the third week or the fourth week and eventually one of them meets up with him and says we've not seen you around, where have you been recently? And he says, well, I've met this girl and I'm spending all the time I can with her. And the friend of says, oh, that's a real drag. He's never been in love and he's not in love. Why does he do it? Because oh, I've got a girlfriend so i better spend time with her really because that's what's expected of you. It says in all the books, you know. No, he does it. It's a duty. It's not a duty. It's a delight. He wants to do it. Now it's the same when you become a Christian. You say, now I'm a Christian. I belong to Christ. What, I wonder what, what will please Jesus today? What are the things that God my Father would love me to do? What are the things that the Holy Spirit prompts me to do? It's a change of name and it's one of the marks of being a Christian. If you don't have that kind of desire, I suggest to you, and I simply suggest to you, that maybe you're not really a Christian. God's Spirit's not within your heart motivating you to do what pleases Him. So rather than ignoring the Ten Commandments, we need to be reminded of them. In one of the orders of communion in the Anglican prayer book, um, There is a recitation one by one of each of the Ten Commandments and the congregation respond by saying, Lord, have mercy upon us and incline our hearts to keep this law. That's a good practice. Now, finally, and very briefly, the answer ought to be obvious. What about the Ten Commandments and everyone? I want to say the Ten Commandments are necessary for everyone in two respects. For our society and for our salvation. If you search on the internet, search engines or Google or something for Ten Commandments, you'll get thousands of responses. Because it's a huge big issue, particularly in the United States, whether the Ten Commandments should be removed from public places or covered over because they're no longer relevant and they discriminate against other people and other religions. Many secularists and atheists, it's usually the ones who don't have any religion, who don't like this, not the ones who do, interestingly. They say they're incompatible with modern society, obsolete, negative, However, while nine out of the Ten ten Commandments contain a negative, that doesn't make them unnecessary or limiting. Imagine if there were no speed restrictions anywhere, not just going into Aberdeen, but you could zip through Aberdeen and Edinburgh at 70 miles an hour. There'd be chaos on the roads. There'd be carnage in the streets. The restrictions, rather than limiting our freedom, create the boundaries for the freedoms we enjoy. Freedom within constraints. And so it is with the Ten Commandments. If God is God, they're not absolute. They're not obsolete. They're they're absolute. They are not the Ten Suggestions. They're the Ten Commandments. And I find it hard to believe our society has improved as we have consistently and greatly ignored them. There's a second reason. Another interesting book which is well worth reading by J. John the Evangelist. He's written a little book called Ten and there's a video course you can get as well. And As he's travelled around Britain teaching mostly to non-Christians and people who don't normally go to church about the Ten Commandments, he says people are really interested in them for two reasons. First of all, people realise our society is in a mess. That we need direction. The second is, he says, he believes they're recognised by conscience. What he says, very telling words. I believe that these ancient rules are stamped like the embossed numerals on a watch dial onto the conscience of every man and woman. They are part of what we are as human beings, and when we hear them, we recognize them in our innermost being, even though we may not like them. I added that bit, but that's true. So the Ten Commandments are necessary for our society, and finally, to come towards a conclusion, they're necessary for our salvation. You see, unless I know what God demands and that I'm guilty if I break his law and I face God's judgment then I'll never realize what serious danger I am in listen friends I really didn't intend to speed down that hill if you've been into Aberdeen you'll know that it's normally stacked up with cars and I've never been down except that morning when there was no traffic and I just zipped along and I didn't see the sign on the left ignorance is no excuse won't get me off the hook. I'm still guilty. When I find I'm guilty, I've got to pay the penalty. Now I know where it is, I slow down. Now, only if you know what a predicament you are in before God will you seek God's forgiveness. You see, if I just present the Christian message as another option to meet your felt needs, you can take it or leave it. Oh, I might hear a better one next week. But if I say, as the Apostle Paul did, speaking to Greek philosophers in Athens, the pinnacle of academia in this day, about their idolatry, he spoke to them and said, you need to know what God demands. He says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance that you're displaying. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead, Acts 17, 30 to 31. Now, when you say that, it places it on a totally different level. Every human being will stand before the Son of God and be judged by him at the final day. That's a serious business if it's true. You need to know what God demands, but then if you say, gosh, I never realized I was in such a serious condition, then you will seek what God offers. You see, the bad news is this. Each of us has broken God's law. Each of us faces God's judgment, what the Bible calls death, which is eternal death, separated from God forever. The wages of sin is death. But the good news is this. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6 verse 23. So can I encourage you, if you have friends who are not Christians, don't think, oh it's a Ten Commandments Sunday morning, it's totally irrelevant to my friends They're not interested in that kind of thing. They need to hear that they've broken God's law. That they're in mortal danger. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you are in mortal danger. You need to recognize you've broken God's law. And you need to seek the forgiveness that only He can offer. The new life that he can bring. A new relationship with God. A new covenant written on your heart. Living a life that pleases God. This is the only life that really counts. One final thing. On the 22nd of May next year, 2006. It will be three years after my speeding events. And I understand that I can send my license off. Someone will tell me differently at the door, but I understand the three points will be removed from my record. I'll be wiped clean, as long as I don't do something stupid again. I want to say to you this evening, this morning, almost evening, say to you this morning, you don't have to wait till next year to get your record wiped clean. This morning, your record can be wiped clean. If you come in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. You think of all the terrible things you've done. The ones that people know about. And the ones that nobody knows about. The things you've said and done and thought. Imagine standing before God today. You're guilty. Your record is full. Of your sin. But the Lord Jesus Christ. If you come to him. This is not cheap grace. It cost him his life. The record can be wiped clean. And he'll remember your sins no more. And even the future will be wiped clean forever. Now the urgent matter is to put that right today. To act now. Final verses 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. Apostle Paul writes, As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, In the time of my favour I heard you and in the day of salvation helped you. I tell you, now, now, it's the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. Let's pray together.